0: Welcome to the British History Podcast, my name is Jamie, and this is Episode 17, Advancement and Occupation. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at Podcast.com. And thank you very much to William, Jane, and Eric for contributing already. It was 138 A.D., and the emperor was dying. He had reigned for 20 years, had dramatically shaped the course of Roman history, and now his reign was coming to an end. Someday soon, a new emperor would take his place. And he knew exactly the man for the job, Marcus Aurelius. The problem was that young Marcus was exactly that, young, only 17 years old. And so Hadrian turned to Antonius, who would later become known as Emperor Antonius Pius after deifying Hadrian. Antoninus, much like Hadrian, rocked the beard. So perhaps that's why the aging statesman was favored by the emperor. But it's more likely the fact that Antoninus was an aging statesman. He was a consul as well as a member of Hadrian's inner circle of advisors. And of course, he was well-respected by the senate as he was one of their order, and had cultivated a reputation for being honest and dutiful. But of course he wasn't just a statesman, he was an aging statesman, and that made him ideal. Antoninus was 52 years old, and since Marcus Aurelius was Hadrian's real choice, but too young to be selected, who better than an old, childless, honorable man to keep the seat warm until Marcus was of age? So Hadrian adopted Antoninus on the condition that he must, in turn, adopt Marcus Aurelius. Antoninus accepted. And shortly thereafter, Hadrian died at the age of 62. But the problem is is that no one told Antoninus that he was supposed to die. So he rudely kept on living. But that wasn't too terrible. In fact, it was rather a lot like having another Hadrian. Except that unlike Hadrian, Antoninus had no desire to roam the world. After all, he was one of the great landowners in Italy. And why would he want to leave his villas for the untamed wilderness of the frontier? But other than that, Antoninus was quite faithful to the memory of his adopted father. And most of the policies pursued by the emperor seemed like the natural progression of those enacted by Hadrian. He was very good for Rome. And the period under his rule was to be the most peaceful in the empire's history. But there are always exceptions. And there would always be war. And I'm sure you can guess where he decided to wage that war. In 139 AD, Antoninus appointed Quintus Lolius Urbicus as governor of Britannia. Urbicus was instructed by the emperor to take a more aggressive posture with the rebellious Brigante. The legions were sent north to the Wall sometime following 140. And though we know little of what occurred, there are inscriptions at Carlisle and at the south of the Solway Ford regarding successful battles against the Britons. In fact, some of these battles occurred beyond the Wall and involved the 6th legion there is also an altar dedicated to the defeat of the Coriano Tote, an otherwise unknown tribal group in Britannia that might have been the Cruithentuath, the group that would later be known as the Picts. See, Ewan, we're getting closer to our talk about the Scots. Anyway, so Urbicus was successful in his military engagements, and we know this not just because of the inscriptions and altars, but also because the operation halted in 142, victory coins were issued in 143, and Roman sources speak of Antoninus conquering the Britons. In fact, Antoninus claimed the title of Imperator in 142, but we'll get to that in a minute. Additionally, there was now a new frontier at the 4th Clyde Isthmus, around 100 miles to the north of Hadrian's Wall. The New Frontier tells us a couple things about the Antonine Conquest. The first is that the conquest was not as successful as the Flavian advance. So Antoninus wasn't really deserving of his reputation of conquering the Britons. At most, he conquered a small part of the Britons. And he didn't even do it himself. His governor conquered them. Antoninus was still in Rome, enjoying, you know olives and stuff while the real work was being done by the legions. The second thing this tells us is that the conquest was very likely a bit of political theater. Now while this was political theater, it certainly was real to the Britons who were under attack, and it certainly was real to the Romans who were sent into this wild territory to the north, but ultimately this was all done for political reasons. Antoninus was in a similar position as Claudius, He wasn't a respected military hero, and he hadn't earned the title of imperator. Oh sure, the title was nearly a formality at this point in Roman history, but for Antoninus to earn the title of imperator, he needed a successful conquest. So the Britons were politically expedient in that regard, not to mention the shock and awe impact that would have had on the Senate. Here you have this peaceful, calm, older emperor, suddenly declare that he was going to expand the territory of Rome and make war on these strange barbarians that have been a thorn in the side of even the most militaristic of emperors. Such a move would have made a huge impact, and that couldn't have been lost on him. Not to mention that the sudden offensive thrust was probably intended to conjure memories of Trajan and show Rome that while Antoninus was Hadrian's successor, he would still be a strong emperor, like the beloved Trajan. Now, of course, all of this is conjecture. We don't have a diary where Antoninus is saying, Dear diary, I'm really concerned about my lack of military success, and I don't want to be like Claudius. I want to be more like Trajan, and so I think I'm going to go beat up on the Britons. But I think that explanation makes the most sense. After all, the attack on the Britons was a striking departure from the general demeanor of Antoninus's reign. And the Britons were actually a really good target for this. I mean, if it all went badly, who cares? It's Britannia. Britannia really was the safest bet out of all the territories for war. It was essentially the only opportunity that Antoninus had for a war without consequences. If the Britons got rowdy and rebelled against the Romans, or even if they marched on southern Britannia, how would that impact the citizens of Rome? It isn't like they could capture Deva and then immediately set sail for Rome. If a war was needed, Britannia really was the best place to do it. So Antoninus had his war, and in 142 he became Imperator. Now there are some who think that this wasn't for political reasons, and rather it was because the Brigante were in rebellion. This is based upon a reference in Pausanias, who spoke of the Brigante being pushed out of their Genoian lands. But that was likely another group of people on the continent, called the Brigantii, who were the neighbors of the Genani. Brigantii, Briganti, they sound very similar. Basically, I think this entire controversial theory that the war was started because of a rebellion amongst the Briganti was largely due to a typo, and that no such thing occurred. Now, others have argued that it occurred because of economics. I think that's incredibly unlikely. Sure, you Might! Might! have some new recruits, and land to tend. But generally, the land to the north is rather rugged, and I'm sure I'm going to get emails from Tim and others arguing that the beauty of the north should be enough of a draw. (laughs) But I really don't think that thistles and rocky lands would have been enough to draw the legions north. And there really just wasn't the fertile land for development that there was in the south. So I just don't see a significant economic gain For taking the north. So my guess is that the push north was for political reasons, and well, the Britons were just convenient and a relatively safe group of victims. Not to mention that despite the fact that Britannia had been under Roman control for a century, it still held some level of mystique due to the fact that it was nestled within Oceanus. So Antoninus had a new frontier. What should he do with it? well, what would Hadrian do? That's the real question, isn't it? Since Antoninus largely emulated his predecessor, well, Hadrian would build a wall. And that's what Antoninus did. He commissioned the Antonine Wall, stretching along the 39-mile stretch between the Firth of Forth and the Firth of Clyde. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into the nitty-gritty of the wall, since we covered much of the same material when we spoke of Hadrian's Wall, and not even a generation has passed since the building of that wall. So things were largely the same, but here's the short version. The Antonine Wall was a turf wall, fronted by an ankle-breaker ditch, and along the top were probably additional chest-high ramparts made of willow and ash. Now, the wall was shorter than Hadrian's, reaching a height of probably around 10 feet, There were mile castles and fortlets spaced out, just like in Hadrian's Wall. And although it started with only six forts, placed at around eight mile intervals, by the end of the construction, there were a number of forts added. Sources and theories vary, but I've seen numbers as high as an additional 20 forts that were added at or near the wall. Now, while most of these forts would have been made out of turf and timber, they would have looked much like the forts that we spoke about last episode. So it was a lot like Hadrian's Wall. But there was a new innovation in design, the military way. This was a road that ran the length of the wall and connected with major roads heading south, thus allowing for quick transport along the wall as well as to the wall. It was a fantastic idea and it surprises me that it took this long for them to come up with it. Now construction on the wall began in 142 AD and continued for 12 years. It was built by the same three legions that worked on Hadrian's Wall. And while this was occurring, forces were being transferred north from Hadrian's Wall. And by 145, most of the forces were concentrated along the new wall. As for Hadrian's Wall, the turrets and mile castles were just completely abandoned, as surveillance was no longer necessary. After all, what were they going to look at? Roman lands? Why? Also, doors were removed from the fortlets, mile castles, and whatnot, to provide unobstructed access to the newly conquered territory. Legionary detachments moved in to occupy the forts that had been left behind by the auxiliaries, who had moved north to the Antonine Wall, and in some areas, the Vallum was filled in and leveled to allow better travel north. Hadrian's Wall was no longer the frontier. At most, it was a support platform. And from a military perspective, it wasn't a totally outlandish thing to do. After all, the Antonine Wall was nearly half the size of Hadrian's Wall, which meant they could hold the line in significantly greater strength with the same number of men. In fact, the concentration was nearly double that of Hadrian's Wall, not to mention that they could easily march men from fort to fort quicker than on the southern wall. This new wall was in many ways a much more defensible position, and it was intended to be permanent. I mean, it had to be. There really is no other explanation for filling in the vallum of Hadrian's Wall or tearing off the gates. The new border was the Antonine Wall. Scotland had been reoccupied. So the bulk of the military was to the north, and the 39-mile stretch that was covered by the Antonine Wall saw the heaviest concentration of military power in the area. But that doesn't mean much unless we put it in perspective. Britannia was incredibly heavily militarized to begin with, There were at least six legions that served in Britannia over the course of its occupation. And at least three of those legions built and supported both walls. And that doesn't even take into account the auxiliaries, who were numerous and manned the walls. Now compare that with Africa and Numidia. That region was a far larger province. And in its history, it only had two legions, but for all intents and purposes, it really was just one legion, since the other legion was only stationed there briefly. Rome was dumping enormous amounts of blood and treasure into Britannia in an effort to hold and pacify it. And those nutty tribes to the north were just not having any of it, especially the Caledonians. But before we get to that, why build a wall? We have a pretty good guess as to why Antoninus went on the offensive. He wanted to gain popularity by beating up the most unpopular kid at school. And he accomplished that. I mean, the red-headed stepchild has been thoroughly beaten up. So why did he feel the need to just go and camp out outside his house now? Why build a wall? Well, it's an answer that is becoming all too common in this podcast. We aren't sure it could be that he just wanted to emulate Hadrian. And it could be that the tribes beyond Hadrian's Wall were building up pressure. And that pressure highlighted the weakness of Hadrian's Wall, namely its sparse defenders. So Antoninus couldn't simply return the men to the Wall following the conquest of the North for fear that the northern tribes would unite and once again try and go south. But if that's the case... There must have been one hell of a security issue because the economics of the wall were, well, not good. Consider the massive expense of creating Hadrian's Wall. It took years to complete, required men and resources in equally enormous quantities, and any administrator with a head for economics would have had heart palpitations when he heard of Antoninus' decision to build another wall. Also, the strategy of building such a wall is kind of questionable. If there were problems with the north, do you really want to build a wall farther north? The shorter line in the north would be more defensible, sure. But it would also be deeper in hostile territory, and you run the risk of being attacked from the south and the north. Whatever was gained by the shorter border would certainly be lost by the location of that border. So some have suggested that it could have been a punitive measure against the Brigante. The theory is that Brigantium could have held territory to both the north and south of Hadrian's Wall. And maybe that would have been a point of contention between the tribe and Rome. And maybe there were attacks and rebellions by the Brigante due to that tension. All of this could explain the the existence of the Vallum and the push north and whatnot, if, of course, you assume that politics didn't play any role in the push north. But the Vallum does present somewhat of a... You know, mystery. And if the Brigante were attacking from both sides because Hadrian's Wall bisected their territory, uh, well, this might be a plausible reason. So the theory is that Rome might have moved the static border north to encompass all of Brigantium and punish the rebelling tribe. Frankly, I think that sounds both extreme and unlike Antoninus. To do such a massive land grab just over a rebellion is out of character for the emperor. I just don't think he would do it. I think that the reason that he built the wall is the same for the push north, prestige. He wanted to point at all that was best of his predecessors, Trajan's expansion, Hadrian's architectural wonders, even Caesar's conquest of Britannia, and say to the Romans, I can do that too, and then do it. But as I said earlier, the Britons were having none of it. Especially the Caledonians, who remained unconquered to the north and had experience in killing Roman legions. So, what happened? You'll have to wait until next week to find out. As I mentioned on Facebook, I've been having some computer troubles and I had to wipe my computer, so this one's a bit short due to time constraints, but I want to get this out as soon as I can now that the computer's up and running. So, I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, if you want to go and discuss the podcast, have any ideas, recommendations, that sort of thing, you can head over to facebook.com slash British History, or head to our site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, or you can email me directly with any of your questions, comments, concerns. My email address is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And Tim, Wales is better than York. All right, thanks for listening.